No one intentionally starts gambling with the hope of becoming addicted or understanding how it could possibly destroy their life. Bobby Malatesta had a 30-year career in corporate America, but now she is managing two organizations and one of them is to raise awareness of gambling addiction firsthand and the other is a virtual assistant business. We will talk about this later in the show. Bobby is going to answer your questions about addiction and recovery. Whether it's for yourself or someone you may know, we know and want you to share this program with them because I know that Bobby is going to have a lot of things that will benefit our listeners. She's also going to share how someone can get back control of their lives who may be suffering in this area. So thank you so much for listening today to Never Ever Give Up Hope. Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Grant. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. Ever, ever give up hope. With me today, I have Bobby Malatesta. Hi, Bobby. Hi, Carol. Thank you for having me on your show. So we're going to start with the beginning, and if you would share what you think or what you know led to your addiction, whether it was from your childhood or any time after that. Tell us your story. I sure will, Carol. And it's interesting. I probably couldn't have answered this question the way I'm about to even two or three years ago. But what I've come to learn about my journey is that I grew up in a family of of addicts. We had Uh, relatives that were alcoholics, relatives that were drug users, and even friends and the whole gamut. And through my teenage years, I didn't want to grow up to be an alcoholic. And I had created an affinity for anything from scratch-off tickets to bingo, Hmm. all the way to sneaking into the casino when I was underage because I knew how to sneak through the bathroom and get in there and gamble. It was interesting because my uncle had painted the casino and there was just this one place where there was no security guard and I could never gamble big because if I won, I would have gotten thrown out. So I would drive an hour and a half, even with 40 bucks to go sneak in and, and play. And one year, I think I was 18, I gambled away my whole income tax check at the casino, which was $300, which was like more money than I knew Mm -hmm. what to do with back then. have come to learn that I was using gambling to cope and escape and do all the things for all the feelings that I never learned how to process or address. We had 
Explain I'd that. Had, Explain that a little bit more. Well, when I was 14, Carol, my we lived in a three-family house and two of my uncles lived in each apartment and then us. And my one uncle was HIV positive. And this was back when people didn't know much about AIDS and were very scared of it. And his girlfriend had broken up with him and he thought he would never be loved again. So he committed suicide when I was 14. The fellow that moved in his apartment, and that was the week between Christmas and New Year's, the following, the following tenant who I just had the biggest crush on, he OD'd the following Thanksgiving. Oh, no. My first boyfriend died the following Martin Luther King's birthday. So, and that's just some of the high level ones. Mm-hmm. So all these things were happening. I didn't, you know, we didn't talk about this kind of stuff 20, 30 years ago right. as far as how to deal or mental health or none of those things. So gambling was part of what I was using to cope. And, and, and I had gone through my periods of drinking and drugging as well, but I was mindful I didn't want to become an addict, not knowing that gambling was an addiction or just as harmful back then. Uh, maybe even more harmful because your body doesn't tell you when to stop gambling. Maybe your bank account does wow, wow. If, if you don't steal or do the next thing, but there's no, there's no limit, right? That's a very good point. I've never heard that before, but you know, that is an excellent point. Go ahead. Yeah. So that's what I mean. I never processed all that loss. I never really grieved and I never really understood my feelings in that way. When my uncle died, I, I just hid in the gym class for my whole sophomore year. Year I hid in health class and that was, that was my only way to cope was was to escape. So I was escaping in school even. And thank goodness for my favorite teacher back then. So it it progressed. And in my early 20s, I became a truck driver over the road and eventually a tractor trailer instructor. And when I was driving, I would plan my trips around casinos. I would be out for weeks at a time and I would always sleep in casinos or go to casinos. And I ended up meeting my husband. We eventually started driving together and he would wake up at casinos when I should have been driving the truck. <laughs> and <laughs> he he eventually politely asked me to get out of the truck and go back to my supermarket career. And within 24 hours of him dropping me off at my mom's, I was back at the casino and I won a car at bingo. <laughs> and, <laughs> and when I called him, I was like, do I take the car or the money? Because I had a choice. And uh, he's like, you're at the bleep bleep where? And he pretty much hung up on me. He ruined the whole experience. He had some nerve. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so that happens. And still, even throughout our marriage, he would, I don't want to say let me. He was never a real big gambler. He would go if I went, but I mostly would, there was a point where he was working third shift and this was getting close to the end of our marriage. He was working third shift and I'd say goodnight on the phone and then I'd get dressed and I'd boogie up to the casino while he was working. So he didn't know I was there and I was managing the money. And essentially I was stealing from him because I was taking the household money and using it to gamble and, and any money that 
was, you know, extra or surprise money. I gambled that away as well. Now, at what point did you become aware that this was a problem or did that never happen? In my early 20s, I was in a gambling study. So people told me throughout most of my life, like, hey, do you need to call this 1-800 number? And it was always there. And I was aware that I did more than most. And it was always destination casino every holiday and and all the things. So it was known, but it wasn't, I wasn't admitting it. It wasn't until I moved, I I fought for my my dream job, Carol. I wanted to be vice president of floral by the time I was 40. And at 39, I became director of floral for a different supermarket chain out in the Midwest. And even when I was interviewing for the job, I stayed at the casino. I got the job and on July 7th was my first day. And August 18th, I was in a GA meeting finally declaring and admitting it out loud because I had lost my rent money and every penny I had to my name and I didn't know how I was going to fix it. And by then I was divorced. So I was by myself, Kansas city with, I I would never ask anybody for help as far as like financially or bailouts. So I had to figure it out for myself. And that was the first time that I, that I quit on purpose. And again, the learning upon reflection was that I did that out of fear. I did that out of fear of failing, fear of losing my job. And I ended up relapsing after over two years. Then, and that was late 2015. And 2016 is literally a blur. I know that it surprised you when I talked about the body as far as, you know, there's no limit with gambling. What's interesting is my mind and my my body reacted in some ways that were similar. Like I would black out almost like I would and it was fatigue and it was the zone of watching the slot machines and the escape. I wouldn't know how many times I went to the ATM until I got home and checked my my pockets. I don't remember events of 2016. My my 16-year-old niece was showing me pictures of her last year of what she looked like in 2016. I didn't even recognize her. Like it was, if I wasn't gambling, I was drinking at that point or vice versa. I'd lose all my money and then I would go to the bar and everything was really escalating. My personality was changing. I learned afterwards from my staff, they thought maybe I was in an abusive relationship or something was just off. They couldn't, they couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. And because I had been in in Gamblers Anonymous, I knew about inpatient treatment. So it it started stirring in the back of my mind, again, as the debt was increasing, as the fear was increasing. And I ended up going to inpatient treatment in March of 2017. After all the obstacles were removed, I, first it was, well, how am I going to miss a month of work? And how am I going to pay for it? How am I going to live without a salary? And, and the universe just kept taking away all those, those obstacles. I went in for my benefit meeting and they're like, oh, you have eight weeks of short-term disability you can use. And I was like, oh, okay, I, I, I got it. Away to treatment I went and I have not gambled since. Really? It only took one time? If it counts as one time after relapsing from the first couple of years, 
I went in and, and honestly, it was the first time in my life I ever spent 28 days focused just on myself. I had to address the things I had to dig deep. I had a, you know, we had homework and we had group and, and I didn't do like all my changing while I was in there. But what happened was two things. I became more vulnerable. I broke finally, like on the last week I was there where I had my, you know, breakthrough meltdown in group. And I also fell in love when I was in there, which is not highly recommended. No. However, that that man has been instrumental in in my learning and growing both in there and out of there afterwards. And I don't know if you can answer this or not. Is there like a thermometer where either someone that you can notice about someone else or about yourself as to when it's a strong indication that there is a problem? Oh, that's a great question. So there are some there are some indicators if you know what you're looking for. A lot of it surrounds the moodiness, you know, the anger and the defensiveness and the lying. There is so much lying. We we kind of joke about it in, in our recovery community. They're almost synonymous, lying and gambling. So there's those hints if you know what you're looking for. Unfortunately, a lot of the times, unless unless you get found out, like I have friends that the spouses opened the mail and found second mortgages or new credit cards and and other people's names. So unless the secrets come out, it's hard to identify. And unfortunately, there's a lot of loss and suicide because people can't see it as evidently. And they don't find out Mm. until afterwards, till it's too late. So is suicide a serious issue? Well, of course it's serious, but I mean, is it an issue with gamblers? Like, do you know any of the stats? It is the highest suicide rate across addictions. And again, there's that, that premise of the alcohol and drugs, you would have an overdose. But even in our group meetings, People have shared, you know, they, they've been clean from alcohol 20, 30 years, but they couldn't shake gambling. And it wasn't until they were gambling that they felt suicidal. Why do you think the suicide rate is so high among gamblers as opposed to, for example, other addictions? Well, I'm not sure if it's specifically because of the mind altering effect of some of the other addictions or just the pure hopelessness. I mean, my debt was over six figures. I was fortunate that it was just my debt, right? And and that I could have a career that it would take time, but I could clean it up. But other people could have stolen their children's college funds or, you know, they have families counting on them and feeling like you can never undo the damage you've done. That's a, a, a big piece that of it. Sense. And I'll... And then there's the whole mental illness, I guess, in general, as part of the equation. So many people use gambling to deal with depression, with anxiety, with loneliness. There's there's a lot of reasons that people use it. So if those voids are in their lives and you don't have any money or maybe, again, I, I have so many friends that have gone to prison from gambling 
they're afraid of getting caught by their bosses or the authorities, you know, if they're embezzling or stealing. So there's a lot of different reasons. That's really interesting because as you're talking, I remembered somebody who was very near and dear in my life for many, many years who had an extreme gambling problem. And I remember the day that he told me that he was never going to go to a casino again. And I frankly didn't believe him and he never did. And that had to be 20 years ago. So my question there is, is this sometimes, um, it's just like with drinking, some people can say no more or smoking or any other addiction. I understand that the emotional side of uh, gambling is probably much stronger. But have you known people like that who have just said, okay, that's it, enough, I'm done, and they didn't go for therapy or anything else and just never went back into a casino or any other place to gamble? I'm going to share with you one of the analogies that we use in my in my primary recovery group. And this has actually been used on the show, Mom, which is about an alcoholic mother and daughter and the daughter had a gambling problem, but we compare ourselves, we call ourselves pickles. So when a normal person or a person gambles normally and they can go for fun or just leave after losing what they have, they're a cucumber. But once you cross that invisible line, whether it's an you know into an alcoholic or into a problem gambling person, you become a pickle. And usually you can't go back and gamble normally. So you said that you knew someone who quit and then never went back. I believe that you have to totally abstain to not put yourself at risk because it escalates and it picks right up where it is. I don't know many people that have, I don't know that I know anyone that ever quit without Gamblers Anonymous or some sort of recovery practice. But that could be just I don't know anyone because a lot of my fellow gamblers I know from different recovery places through the last four years of the research I've been doing and the life I've been living that the reason that addictions are formed are because of something, whether it's childhood trauma or whatever. I believe they all have a cause. And also the other thing that shows up is they call it co-occurring disorders, you know, in the formal land, but essentially cross addiction or doing something else. So, so did he or anyone else in that bucket quit gambling, but then maybe the drinking ramped up or the shopping ramped up or the sex ramped up? Like there's no way to really Mm. know all that Mm -hmm. across the board. Right. So interesting. Well, we're going to take a 30 second break. And when we come back, we're going to get into the other side of gambling and what you have learned and how you are helping those who have been on the dark side. Carol Graham would like to show you the path from misery to miraculous triumph in her fast-paced memoir, Battered Hope. She relates her determination to succeed as someone who experienced one horrendous nightmare after another, gang raped and left for dead, loss of a child, husband falsely imprisoned, and cancer. Nothing could break her tenacity or faith. No matter what you face, heartache, loss, suffering, or injustice, Carol will illustrate how she became a victor the same way you can. The secret is to never, ever give up hope. 
Order your copy at Amazon or batteredhope.blogspot.com. What happened that you were able to gain control of your life again? Was there, uh, besides that aha moment when you knew that you had to stop and you, you went to recovery, anything else? Well, Carol, I've had a very interesting couple years and not even just COVID specific, but as I mentioned, I fell in love when I was away and we had split up. And there was a night that I was drinking and we have the same clean date. So it's very important to me that I don't relapse because I don't Mm. ever want to give up this same clean date. So that's very motivating to me. And now I named my company after my clean date and I literally have it tattooed on my ankle. So (laughs) I can't go back to gambling. Excuse me. Is that the 321? It is. Okay. All right. You can talk about that in a minute. Go ahead. So. I had, I had been drinking and I had sent him the nastiest text I've ever sent anyone. And I had, I'd never, that's not who I am. A series of things unfolded after that. I had totally stopped talking to him after that, after I apologized. And then I went on my first sober trip with a different kind of recovery group. We went to Asia and we came home February of 2020. So right as COVID was ramping up. And my first night out without drinking, I was trying to see if I, I was kind of trying to test myself. I get a text that my estranged biological father died. And so I'm not talking to the person who I think, you know, like can cope and understand with. I'm not drinking because I don't want to drink to cope. I can't gamble because I don't want to blow my date. And I end up being, because I'm the oldest daughter, I am the one who has to coordinate and do everything for Bob's funeral. And what I learned during that period of time, when many, many years, I used to say that I would go to his funeral, like just to verify that he was dead and to spit on his grave. Like I was that angry and that hateful. Really. And what ended up happening through my recovery journey was I got over hate. I don't even like using that word anymore. And I got what I consider like if you were looking at a at a gas tank, hate would be empty, love would be full, and uh, neutral would be in the middle. So I felt like I got through neutral because here I was as an addict, I can't I can't claim it's a disease or or talk about it in the sense that it's a disease expect people to acknowledge it that way, but then hold it against the people who are also sick in my life. So I had gotten to neutral and I discovered I needed to mourn the last, the loss of being able to get to forgiveness someday. So that was like one of my biggest struggles, Mm -hmm. but without the alcohol, without the gambling, I really had to process everything. And I've been very fortunate and it's, it's just like this period of life I'm going through now if I wasn't going to my meetings, if I wasn't doing my self-care practices, if I wasn't taking care of myself, I would not be able to handle these situations. And that's what that taught me. I, I podcasted through the, through the misery. I had called my counselor. I went to group. Like I did all the things, all the tools in the toolbox. And 
through that experience and through, I have what I call the rule of three, where I have to try something three times before I write it off. And one of the things that was included in that was going to church because that had never been part of my life, but my step work included, you know, you have to have a relationship Mm -hmm. with God or explore Mm -hmm. it. So I went to church three times and I was starting to discover church and God and believing that every single thing that's ever happened in my life has a purpose. It allows me to be grateful even in the really rough moments. And I'm a practice what you preach kind of girl. So I don't get to be selective about that. So if I believed that having a biological father that um, you know, basically abandoned us and having all these experiences through my teenager years, what I've come to believe through this process is that all of those things were gifts so that I can relate to more people now that I'm exposing myself and trying to help other people navigate some of these things so they don't end up committing suicide or they don't end up an active addiction where they can't get out of it. And they know that. And I think you do a wonderful job of this too, with all your different experiences. I think we're aligned in this. You know, you, you mentioned the kidnapping and different things with your husband. Like you go through those experiences and then you can help and reach more people because you're relatable. So that's where my, my gratitude and where my purpose comes from. So that's, that's where my shift has happened most is this last two years with all these challenges that I was presented with. I'm glad you brought that up because that was what I was going to share as well is that I can totally relate but it's even not so much myself as I think I've interviewed over 400 people now on this show and I would say that if I asked that specific question to any one of them they would all say the same thing and many of them have and that is I would not be who I am today if I had not gone through that and when you're in the middle of it or going into it you you know it's hard to understand that even coming out the other end and and with hindsight and looking back to everything you've experienced there's that healing time you know that's required but then when you're through that it's like wow I can use this to help somebody else who would be struggling in the same area so absolutely bang on I was so glad to hear you say that Bobby Oh, thank you. Yeah, I totally appreciated it. I was listening to uh, a couple of your shows yesterday in the car, and that really struck a chord. I listened to your intro, and I was like, yeah, she gets me. This is this is very aligning. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, you have a dream about Recovery Playgrounds. Do you want to share that first? Or I also want to know about what you're doing now to help others. So there's a few things I'm doing. I'm doing, I'm still active, right? So the, the definite foundation of helping people in my groups and, and showing up for meetings and doing the regular service work that a lot of people, if they're familiar with 12 steps comes part of. So there's that there is speaking engagements. I've, I've been on a lot of things virtually the last year. I I just did a couple live events recently. So spreading the word. One of the the messages that I like to share is the example of the arcade for the parents out there. 
our definition of gambling is using money or not, whether based on skill, but where the outcome is unknown, whether it's skill or not. And I want parents and people to be aware that essentially we start teaching people, children, that it's okay to gamble in that arcade environment. Chuck E. Cheese, Dave and Buster's, those are like mini casinos for kids. You put money in, you get a ticket, you're rewarded, all the science and dopamine, the whole experience. So that's a big part of how I try to reach people in a very simple way. I go to the conferences and get educated on things like gaming and, and just the the things that show up and try to be preventative. And then my podcast has been all about my journey and it's kind of evolved into some of the other addictions because I believe in the the crossover and to explore the similarities and differences. I've also mentored and coached individuals. And I also have what's called the give up gambling email, 30 day email challenge where People can sign up and they get a daily email that kind of walks them through some of the strategies that I've used to become gamble free and to help set them up for a life without gambling. You're active, very active <laughs> in that. That's wonderful. And the recovery playground. Okay. All right, here goes. So all of this started with the dream of my recovery playground and It was a seed years ago when I was married to my ex. He was 12 years older than me, and he was a big kid. And I wanted to throw his 50th birthday party and have all kinds of, like, kid activities, like a slip and slide. And and that was kind of the birth of the idea. But I wanted no children around. And it's not that I don't like children. It's just that if you think about going to a museum or an amusement park or any kind of experience with your kids, bowling, the parents always make it about the kids' experience. Now, they'll tell you that that lights them up and makes them happy, and that's true. But as a general rule, adults don't get to play. There's no place to go play. And my dream for the recovery playgrounds is to have an adult-only, gamble-free, alcohol-free, children-free environment where people can play in a way that, so so boredom is one of the biggest reasons people relapse or use. Yes, yes. So I want to create this environment, and it's going to have everything from a roller skating ring to an ice cream bar, because ice cream is part of my recovery, to... um, I love Zumba, so there'll be a Zumba room that has a Latin-flavored menu and the bright colors and play Latino music. So all different pieces of my recovery are going to be integrated into this, and I want to create a chain in, in different places across the country. And there'll be the idea is to have sober living on the properties and to have a big part of my staff be in recovery to help teach the adults how to play. I want to do things like, instead of just having dessert to celebrate birthdays and anniversaries, I want to celebrate clean time and take away the shame. It doesn't have to be in a 
secret anonymous room to celebrate if you have a year or 10 years away from a bet, a drink or whatever. I want to normalize the fact that just about all of us struggle with something. And I want the coping mechanisms to be incorporated into my recovery playgrounds. Well, every dream has to start someplace, right? Yeah. And obviously, it is a big one. It would be wonderful for you to be able to get financing or whatever would be required. Which, have you done anything to to try to attain that? Like, put this put this out there, do a, some kind of prospectus or something? Well, that's actually, so that's the dream. And I've, I've learned a lot this last couple of years through um, online coaching and a lot of classes. And my philosophy had been, and why I left my corporate job was, it would have taken me years, even at a good salary, to get to a million or $2 million. And I need hundreds of millions to, to pull this off. Vegas is mm-hmm. building um, a gambling-free like resort thing. And it's, really? I think they said it was $850 million for this property. So what I'm doing, and this is where what birthed our virtual assistant businesses, I'm learning e-commerce and writing the writing books and going on summits and doing all these things that will all be income streams. And my strategy is to prove that I can make a million or $2 million in a very short period of time, a year or two, so that when I go to the table looking for investors, I show them that I'm worth investing in. Right. Very good plan. Good strategy. And I'm learning amazing things along the way. I bet. Absolutely. To kind of summarize everything, do you possibly have a favorite quote or a mantra as a word of encouragement in that form? Honestly, the serenity prayer is probably one of the biggest mantras I live by. Really relinquishing the things that are out of my control and not letting them stress me out and drag me down and and hold me in a vice, right? Because we can't move forward if we're stuck in that stuff. And really appreciating everything, the good, the bad, the ugly, and just practicing gratitude. I think those are are two of my biggest, two of my biggest things that I live by. Oh, and, and our slogan, our slogan for three, two, one is positivity is no gamble because if you're positive and happy and doing that stuff, there's no risk. Like you can't go wrong in being positive. I love that. Well, this has been great. It's been a long time coming, Bobby. I'm so glad that we finally have been able to come onto the show. We're looking forward. First of all, we want to be sure that our listeners tune into your podcast. We'll have all that on your show notes. If they know of anybody or they themselves are struggling, do you have, can they uh, approach you like through your website or Facebook or something like that as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. We, because my hands are in so many things, we, you can find me very easily through 321 No Kid In, which is, no children allowed, you know, in the recovery playground. Right. So that's where the no kid in comes from. Okay. And it also, it, it also is like gambling is an addiction. No kid in. Okay. So it, those are the two, <laughs> you know, people just don't think of that. And then right. um, everything else is 
Bobby the Awesome is another way to find me because I want to teach people it's okay to be proud of themselves and to focus on our good attributes instead of listening to those negative voices in our heads. And that is a perfect summary. Thank you so much, Bobby, for being on Never Ever Give Up Hope. My pleasure, Carol. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.